Welcome back to Gin Welcome Topic. Welcome back to Welcome Gin Topic. Welcome back to Gin Topic. If you've forgotten, I'm Sarah. And I'm Anya. And we drink gin. And we don't know anything. <laughs> but it's okay, because we've got a load more experts. We've got some really cool topics, and we're going to find out about them. Yeah, while drinking gin. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> This week on yes. Gin and Topic, we are talking to Dr. Rivka Isaacson. I say it all the time, but another good name. It good is name. a really good name. Yeah. Love the name. And Dr. Rivka Isaacson is an Associate Dean for Doctoral Studies and Reader in Chemical Biology. That's... I'm not sure I know what any of that means. No, well, we're not ap- academic, are no. we? So we don't know what an associate dean is. But that's not what we're learning about. No. What is the topic for this week? Ooh, the topic for this week is nanoscale molecular machinery. What the fuck does that mean? Yeah. So, so nanoscale, small. Yeah. Molecular. Molecules, small. also <laughs> small. Machinery. So tiny, tiny machines. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, the question, we have a few. Oh, okay. okay. Like a few, yeah. And we have a few because Rivka and I couldn't decide which one to have. I should say that Sarah does all the organising. I just show up and do this. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a few, but they're all connected. So the okay. first one is, how can we view the invisible? Invisibility cloaks. Oh, yeah. That's all I'm on. How do you view it? Take it off. Okay, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so how can we view the invisible? Or how can we work out the shapes of things that are too small to see? Right. So I'm straight away thinking microscopes. Because... I'm straight away thinking, why do we need to? Why does it matter? Why do I care? Maybe that's just the mood I'm in today, but I'm like, well, why do I need to see it? If it's invisible, it's invisible. I don't need to see it. Well, I suppose things like germs, they're invisible I, to the naked eye. Right. I hate seeing pictures of germs. I hate knowing what shape they are. <laughs> I don't want to know what mites are on my face. I don't care. I don't want to know. Ignorance is bliss in this case. Oh, I, I don't want to the see them. Sort of a little nope. mite I don't like knowing eyelash. that in my lashes there are You're tiny killing. creatures. No, they're not, because you kill them with your mascara. Good. You're an eyelash mite murderer. Good. And I will continue to. But we're not talking about murdering <laughs> eyelash mites today. Um, so, but okay, so that's going to be a question we will add is why do we need to see things why that are really tiny but the final question that Rivka's got on here is how do we solve pieces of life's jigsaw puzzle which I think is the reason why we look at things that are really tiny because whilst we can't see them they're still part of life but how do we solve those pieces when everything keeps moving oh, I feel like my brain's just gone out my ears what gin are we drinking <laughs> do you need some yeah. <laughs> yeah. well that's an interesting one because the gin has botanicals so you can't see them oh, for fuck's sake. so i think this is quite an easy one for what do we know <laughs> Fuck we know that we've broken down nanoscale molecular and machinery but yeah. we don't know what it means as i don't even term. know what life's jigsaw puzzle means right now but some of those pictures for example we know that we can see some of them through microscopes, but I don't know. I don't know anything more about anything. So, well, we've got a lot to learn. We've got so much. A to lot learn. to learn. If I can save them one thing I know at the end of this, we've made progress. Well, 
Okay, you know we're going to drink gin. Oh, I do know we're going to drink gin. That is always exciting. And if I tell you you have some cucumber in your glass. Yeah. Is it Hendrix? (laughs) Right, so I love cucumber and gin. I don't think we should limit it to just Hendrix. Well, we do Well, exactly. We like cucumber and black pepper in a gin. But this week, it's not normal Hendrix, right? No, which is why I'm not giving you black pepper. Okay, so... I'm only giving you... Uh, cucumber. Cucumber and ice. And a normal tonic water. Okay, fever tree, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> um, because this is Hendrix's Midsummer Solstice. What does that mean? Well, it's a limited release of oh, Hendrix okay. that is um, distilled with floral botanics of the summer season. And I'm not typically a floral gin kind of person. No. That's true. Which, this could be interesting, because I like Hendrix normally. You say floral, and I immediately go, ooh. I know. I know. But it looks very pretty. It's very purple. It looks gorgeous. And who knows? Maybe it's going to surprise you. Maybe it'll surprise me. I would like it to surprise me. Gin me. Smells a bit lemony. Well, they did say citrusy too. Ooh. Ooh. I had a palmer violet smell there. That was weird. It tastes a bit palmer violets, but I quite like it. That's not too florally for me. It's nice, oh, right? That is. Yeah. That's like a palmer violet sweet without the sugar. Yeah, I kind of get that. But I don't normally like palmer violets. No, nor do I. But yeah, it's good. I like that. Yeah. It's a bit sherbetty. It's quite tasty. It's I could drink a lot of that, but not now. Not in one big <laughs> succession. I think we should. <laughs> And you've got a gin, which is great because your gin looks a different colour to our gin. So what have you done to yours? Well, I just used, um, and I should have brought it up to show you, I used a posh tonic that I had in the fridge that was, um, you know, one of those fever tree little pink tins. So I think that's where that colour comes from. But later when I have to have another one, I've only brought like a... um, I brought a cheapo bottle up with a with a sleeve. That's... I love that. <laughs> and I love the attitude as well, because that is our attitude. Later when, <laughs> when I, I have to one. have another yes. one, yeah. it's like a yeah. necessity of having another Absolutely. one. Not, not a choice. No. Right. <laughs> and I brought some ice cubes in here. I just had to yes. have like a few little arrangements. That preparation is brilliant. I love it. I love your planning. And I've had mm. enough Zoom drinks by now that I know... It's important to have spare. You can't just rely on the one in your glass. Absolutely not. So, cheers. Oh, I do like it. I do think it is really palmer violet-y, but in a really good way. That's interesting because I can't bear palmer violets, but I really, I, I do like the, I do like the gin. I, I think actually you can drink it neat quite easily, even though it's quite high alcohol content, which is good. However, I can imagine actually it would work really well, neat. Yeah, but and the floral is really interesting because it isn't too overpowering. Mm -hmm. It isn't pretend floral. So, where did you come across the gin? Well, um, so I've got this friend who's an academic in the States and she um, she's called Lisa and she's a historian. But before she went into academia, she had a foray with, you know, the corporate world and her first ever business trip she went on. Uh, which was years and years ago, happened to be in Sweden over 
the time of her 25th birthday, which was also midsummer. And she was like away from everyone she knew for her birthday, but hadn't realized that the Swedes make this huge, huge big deal of midsummer. So it was like there was a massive party just for her in the whole city. And she resolved that when she turned 50, she'd like gather all her friends in Sweden and have a big bash. And she actually did do that. So in 2019, it was like probably our last hurrah before this whole this whole situation yeah and so she rented an amazing rooftop airbnb in stockholm and invited all her friends yeah from all over the world to join her there um but they had a bit of an emergency which was they didn't realize that the alcohol shops all closed a day earlier than they thought for the holiday and so we were still i know i know we were still in london and we hadn't left yet and they were like oh my God, you have to get a lot of booze at the airport because we've got we've not got enough to see us through this holiday. So we went to the duty-free in the airport and they were just um, announcing this gin. It was, you know, the new release for Midsummer, And so there was huge promotions around it and they were giving out free samples. So that was how I tried it neat. And, you know, we there was a special offer on it and we thought, you know, it's rude not to. And Brilliant. so we, we bought a bottle of that and we bought lots of other, other stuff. But, I, you know, I forever associate it with this big, you know, yeah. lovely party that we had before everything went tits up. You must have looked a right <laughs> alcoholic going well, through I the think, airport. <laughs> yeah, I think there was laws on how much we were allowed to buy, but we did max out, you know, yeah. our no. allowance. Yeah. Okay, so we've got good gin. Now we've got a good <laughs> topic. <laughs> and so we, I was talking to Anya <laughs> and straight away I said to her, she said, what is the topic today? And so I said, it's nanoscale molecular machinery. And we went, what? <laughs> so we broke it down and we said nanoscale. Small. Small. Molecular. Even smaller. Machinery. I'm seeing diggers. Yeah, I was. I was seeing Bob the Builder cartoons and like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then because of my age, I started thinking about. um, I think it's called Inner Space or something like, which was an '80s film where they miniaturized a little submarine and they put it into the blood. At which point, vessels and sent it round a body. Sure, I don't do you, hun. I don't think you're talking about little submarine-like machines. Are you? No, I I think well maybe I was a bit extravagant in my description now. <laughs> I mean I think I think nano as small yeah that's that's good. Yeah, um, we got one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean most molecules. It's funny because we call the molecules we work on macromolecules, which means big molecules, and they're still <laughs> on the nano scale. Um, so it's all relative, you see, because, you know, like in chemistry, you just have like a molecule can be one or two atoms or yeah. maybe a few more, but you can draw them out like every single one in a little structure. Mm-hmm. And with us, we, we can also do that, but it's just very, very busy, shall we say. Um, yeah, no. So essentially, I guess I'm referring to everything that does anything, like any moving parts inside your body as ah. machinery. Like I wasn't in, thinking like of, in us. We're not talking yeah, about machines, we're yeah. talking about within us. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna get freaked out. <laughs> Every time we talk about something like this, I get really aware of my body and then I'm all a bit like I, I get weird <laughs> with it. Essentially, I mean what I'm thinking about is the crowded environment of every cell so you know we have trillions of cells that make up our body like tiny tiny little compartments yeah and inside each one of those is 
it's like a really, really busy shopping centre with lots and lots of stuff, you know, oh, moving do you around. Oh, busy shopping centre? Yeah. Do you remember those? <laughs> I haven't been in those in ages. <laughs> so, and this takes us back to um, go, talking about cells. So we did an episode weeks and weeks ago about cancer. We were talking about the cells and being like villages. So you're sort of similar in terms of yeah. they're really, really busy because we'd always just thought of a cell as one thing There's so much going but on. all of the tiny things that are inside that yeah so I actually usually call it a kind of a department store because it has all the relevant sections that a department store would have and it also has all the layers of organization you know like the people who have to make sure that everything's restocked you know yeah, when this certain is things... up my alley yeah. this is my comfort zone and, like and also you know because they usually have a food court where you yeah. can go and actually eat food there and then but then they also have like a food hall where you can buy the food for yeah. future so it's like satisfying your immediate need and also planning ahead nutritionally um and then you also for example like if you have um you know a certain number of jumpers and then the, the, there's a kind of computer system that tells you when they're getting low and then that will trigger the ordering of a new lot of jumpers and there's lots of layers of management and different um departments that are kind of autonomous but also part of a whole system and it's really important they all work together and actually it's quite a good thing to think about like when uh, a sort of analogy with disease like is like the January sales where like instead of the jumpers <laughs> being in piles they're all, all over the floor and they're not interested in ordering new ones because they're trying to get rid of everything um it's a kind of you know a death mission like let's get rid of everything and then we can start over with the new seasons stuff and it's complete chaos and people are like pushing each other and you can't necessarily you know know it's not everything is in its correct place so oh my god but really like that is what goes on in diseases like not even really an analogy like it really happens like everything that's um supposed to be folded neatly into a precise shape um to do its job kind of you know, gets unfolded or put into the wrong shape, gets squashed together with others. Like um, there, there are some famous diseases called amyloid, like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's, where proteins that normally serve a function within the cell instead form these like stacks of fibers that kind of push their way um, in between the brain and like block connections and stuff like that. So that's a kind of misfolding event um, that you could imagine a more serious version of the jumping situation that's the Um, best way of imagining it that i can picture it and so each of those diseases as you were saying they sort of have a different thing that would have happened i'm just thinking about that department store as you said you know there's a different change that will have would have happened in that disorder yeah and it will make a different layer level of chaos depending on you know which department it's happened in and what's going on and you know the details and how much disruption it causes mm-hmm. but yeah it's funny i've I've thought about this a lot like tried to in fact i've I've been trying to track down people who actually work in management of department stores to try and like flesh out the analogy a bit more because <laughs> i you know I don't really have a clue like well is this then the connection in terms of how do we how do we see all of all of those things in a cell because that sounds you know when you think of a department store they're quite big they're massive they're scary With there's so often many... a screaming child in them <laughs> there's always a screaming child there's always Lost a screaming child somewhere. um and with all of the different departments and as you said you've then got computer systems and things that are going on so there's so much that's going on in there 
And your analogy is that that's all going on within a cell, which is something that we can't see right. with the naked eye. Yeah. And if you think about how much it has to cooperate actually with all the gazillions of other cells that are in the body as well. So that's like loads and loads of different branches of the department store, you know, having to yeah. make sure they're all on the same page or um, having the relevant promotions for their locality, yeah. if you know what I mean. So, I, I mean, I actually hadn't. I hadn't thought this through very well. No, it works so well. It works so well. I didn't think this is the direction we were going to go immediately. (laughs) But it's funny because um, like one of my pets... uh, pet theory is about you know so so in evolution the way like things got more and more advanced and complex um was by introduction of compartments so you know like unicellular organisms like bacteria they just have you know an outside layer and then the inside is all kind of jumbled up I mean there is some kind of organization to it but there's not dividing walls um but then the more advanced you become in terms of the animal kingdom the more Um, you know, divided processes you have. And that kind of allows things that would be toxic to each other to happen at the same time. And it really, um, so so basically my theory is that that dividing walls are only a good thing if you have very good communication between them. I I, I feel like this is a rule that you can apply to almost anything in life that like if you've got good communication between compartments, then compartments can be a, a really advantageous thing to apply mm-hmm. to a system and so then uh, through evolution as you were saying that then there's more compartments that have then been added on as the more com- complex things evolve yeah but that then we've got to have all those really good c- conversations well conversations <laughs> communication yeah. i like to think my body is talking all. to other bits in my it body is, it is so, it totally yeah. is yeah <laughs> i mean you have like all different levels of signaling in your body you have like hormones that go throughout your bloodstream mm-hmm. and activate different things in different organs and also you know it's not just um the, all the different cells or each one of those is a compartment and the organs are made up of specialized cells for whatever they're function is but even within each cell one of the huge advantages um, that you know human and animal cells have over bacteria is that they have a nucleus that's you know enclosed they have um, mitochondria they have they have quite a few different separate sections they have um, the Golgi they have the endoplasmic reticulum they they just have lots and lots of different sections and that facilitates all the different functions that have to go on inside that cell. And so when we're talking about machines, then we're talking about those functions and communications and the things, not Bob the Builder type machines. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, when I talk about machinery inside cells, I'm, t- I'm essentially talking about proteins. Um, so proteins are... I mean, should I tell you a little brief? I mean, you probably already know this, but you have your... your Don't assume we know anything. (laughs) No. (laughs) So so every cell has a nucleus. Inside every nucleus, so that's like trillions you have inside everybody. Um, Inside each nucleus, you have your DNA, which is encoding all your particular traits and everything that is specific to you. But also there's a lot of overlap. You know, most people have the same set of genes, but with slight differences. Um, And those genes are instructions and it's very very important that they stay true that no one messes around with the instructions because then you know the original information would not be preserved so the idea is that when you actually want to use those instructions to do something 
inside your cell, you have to temporarily unwind. So you, you have like two meters worth of DNA inside every nucleus. The nucleus is a tiny, tiny thing. Um, and it's wound up really, really tightly around lots of different kind of layers of organization. And then what you have to do is unwind the particular part that you need and then make a copy a sort of temporary copy of that gene and then export that out of the nucleus. So that's so the DNA stays protected in the nucleus. The copy is called messenger RNA and it's just a, a temporary version of it that gets sent through like a kind of message system through the nucleus into the cytoplasm, which is the rest of the cell, which is where it's used to make a protein. So what happens when it becomes a protein is... You know, DNA has like this whole sequence, A, T, G, C, whatever. Yeah. So um, so does the messenger RNA. And what happens is you have something called a ribosome, which is like a, it looks like a snowman. It's got like a big, set, you know, big a big body and then a smaller head on top. Yeah. Um, and then if you imagine where the snowman's scarf would be, um, that's where this message gets fed through like a ticker tape. And what oh. happens is, yeah, the, 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 the snow person gets the um reads three of those letters so the first three atg um the first three is always atg um for some reason and and, um and then it matches that what we call a code on those three codes um to an amino acid which is a the building block of proteins so dna is a double helix which you always see it's always in the same shape um but then the the messenger rna is a, a bit more of a sort of flimsy floppy wiggly worm type thing um but then a protein so it's like making a necklace you have a string and you take um so you read the first three letters atg you think okay i need this bead um the bead which is called methionine it's a particular amino acid that's always the first amino acid of every protein so you thread that one on then they look at the next three and they thread on so there are 20 beads 20 different kinds of beads they're all different shapes and sizes and colors and if you imagine some of them are kind of magnetic so that once you've threaded them on they might be attracted to another part of the the chain um so so when you've made this this whole protein so it can be a short thing or it can be a really really long thing um then it has to form it's just a string with beads on but it has to form a three-dimensional mechanical machine um that can do a particular purpose um like using the shape of itself and it can also interact with other um, protein machinery and so the shape is like super super important mm. um and how it forms the shape um, it is very is dependent on a few different things. So there's something called chaperones, which is a type of other protein that helps newly formed proteins to find their correct shape. But when they have the wrong shape, that's when you have all kinds of problems. So my my job fundamentally is to solve those shapes, like to find out the exact shape of proteins. There's a lot of proteins where it's still not known, and it's also very hard to work out the shapes because they're very very small. Yeah, how do you even begin to look at that? I mean, firstly, they're so tiny. Secondly, mm. I'm guessing you'd need very specialist equipment and quite a lot of training. And from what you've just said, not only are they tiny, but incredibly complex Hugely with all those complex. different beads and then mm. the different folding of the different shapes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are actually lots of different ways um, to... Uh, to do it and and the technology is constantly improving 
the truth is it's kind of a funny thing but because of the way you know like how anyone can watch tv but hardly anyone could build a tv um it's a bit like that now um because the technologies are so good that actually yeah. the user interfaces are getting better and better so yeah. you don't have to have as many skills as you used to in order to find out the structure of a protein you still need skills it's not like watching telly like you can be a user and you can be a technology developer and that would be mm. like quite a different thing. Basically, there used to be factions between all the different ways that you can solve protein structures and they all used to be enemies. So, you know, there was the nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopist, there was the x-ray crystallographers, there was the electron microscopist and like they all like kind of with separate communities that would never talk to each other. What do a single one of those names mean? <laughs> I'll tell you in a minute. But now, now it's like very cool to be integrated which means right. like the same person yeah. e.g. moi um, will use all of those techniques and, yeah. and that is a bit made possible by what I said about how the technology has advanced and the user interface mm -hmm. is a lot easier so I can tell you what they all mean but my, my sort of first love is, is NMR nuclear magnetic resonance so this is a bit like the, um, the MRI scanner that, that you can be in in a hospital yeah. it's it's a very, 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 very strong magnet that we have. And actually, again, technology has improved a lot. It used to be when I first started out that like you couldn't go near them if you had, you know, a, a metal pin in your leg from an accident or something <laughs> like that. They were so magnetic, you could feel the force from. But now they have these lead shielding and you can actually get very close without you know I've sometimes had a little clip in my hair or something and then be tuning the machine underneath and like suddenly feel myself being drawn to the magnet um but it's yeah they're, they're somehow not as at least not as obviously magnetic mm -hmm. as they used to be which actually makes a massive difference um in terms of the buildings that you can keep because mm -hmm. it used to be like if a lorry was driving by it would like massively affect the magnetic field mm -hmm. because you know it it's stretched out as far as the street. I love the fact that also a lorry can mess up your... It could. Your, yeah. your findings could, it could. Could in the past. That it could have messed up your results by going past. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, actually, because, you know, in my... So in my field... Um, bigger and stronger magnets is you know the thing so they're always trying to get the next like level of strength so how yeah. does that actually work you say it's like a big mri machine how does that work to see things yes it's a very good question um so yeah, in, did it. <laughs> yeah. no so in your in your body um basically there are certain nuclei certain types of atoms which have a property called spin, which means that they respond in a kind of crazy way to a magnetic field. And actually, if you think of all the elements that make up the human body, which is like, you know, carbon and mm. oxygen, things like that, um, and, and a lot of hydrogen, um, actually, the only nucleus in that which has any um, crazy magnetic properties that I'm talking about um, is H1, so hydrogen, basically. Mm -hmm. And when you're having an MRI scan, what they're looking at, they're putting in that magnet and they're kind of making a relative image. So the, the way that those nuclei behaved in the magnetic field is very, very much dependent on their local environment. Mm -hmm. So if you have a hydrogen that's inside a tumor, it will look quite different to a hydrogen that's inside like your blood or inside your bone or, you know, whatever Why? part. Um, it's to do with how much it can move depending on the other charges that are acting on it and depending on the density of other stuff around it. Um, 
So when you do when you do a MRI, what they're looking for is contrast. Mm-hmm. So they're mm-hmm. looking for a difference between you know how a boob should normally look and how a tumor in a boob mm-hmm. would look mm-hmm. in contrast, for example. Um, but because the things I look at are these like tiny little machines that we we don't actually take human we don't use anything from real people mm-hmm. um, but because we know the gene sequence of any protein we're going to try and solve we can produce them artificially so what you can do is create a little gene um, put it into a bacterium and then you just grow loads of bacteria to mm-hmm. switch on the production of your protein by adding a certain chemical and then they divide like mad because they divide every 20 minutes and you get tons and tons of bacteria making your protein like crazy and then you you can get you can get your protein out of the bacteria so you just kind of stop the growing spin them down in a centrifuge bust them open with like sound waves or different there's different technology and then yeah. you can you just can purify the thing that you wanted from all the other crap that's inside the bacteria um quite easily actually and then you can have a pure sample of just the protein that you want to study so what we do is when we grow those bacteria we grow them in a kind of soup you know with all the stuff they like to eat in there so they'll like grow really Mm -hmm. fast and divide a lot Um, but what you can do is replace that soup it's called media we call it media Um, but you can replace the media with what's called minimal media where it's like a, a lot less nutritious but every single component is defined so we can make sure that their only carbon source is carbon 13 glucose for example which is dead expensive um (laughs) but that's science it's expensive um and and then um basically what you can do is punctuate your protein with with these nuclei that have very specific properties in the magnetic field and then once Mm -hmm. you've purified that protein you can put it inside the magnet and you record the spectrum um there's all different kinds of experiments you can do but essentially by looking at the behavior of those pinpointed nuclei in different parts of the protein um they'll have very very specific properties depending on their local environment so you get a lot of information about what's near what in space and in connections and you it's quite complicated but you have like um a lot of computer programs that help you pull together all the information so if you imagine that that string of beads on the necklace. If you imagine that, for example, you know, some of them are magnetic and they start being attracted to different parts of them. And then there are like little elastic bands that you can apply at different, you know, sections to sort of pull different things close to each other. You can start to build up a picture um, of how the three-dimensional final structure should look. We, we once solved the structure of a protein that's actually called gin. Um, and (laughs) which is so funny but um so I'm not trying to be rude here yeah but why why do we need to know this a good it's a very good question again um (laughs) if you know the shapes it's like then then you're in a very strong position in terms of understanding how fundamental processes work but also how to intervene um in the case of disease so the more you know, the more detail, detailed three-dimensional atomic level information you have, the more power you have, really. So essentially what you're doing is just finding all this stuff out so that eventually we can go, we'll fix every disease because we understand all of them perfectly. 
yeah exactly <laughs> brilliant excellent yeah. work <laughs> yeah so that is the plan and actually I mean we you know I don't directly use any structures that I solve for drug development but a lot mm-hmm. of them you know you when you have solved a structure you're obliged to deposit it in like a public data bank and so anyone can use it and they do you know as mm-hmm. soon as you put something out into the public domain then it gets used by other researchers or drug companies or mm-hmm. whatever um, so I think it is, you know, it does turn out useful, even if it doesn't yeah. necessarily feel useful at the time. <laughs> Going back to Anya's point, how can you see something using a magnet? Well, um, you, yeah, is, I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain it. Any That's fine. What I've, if, I've done so far. It, it's all to do with energy levels and the different, um, it, it's to do with how there's, those nuclei respond when you blast them with certain pulses and the way that they relax back you get signals like you end up I wish I could show you my data but you just end up with kind of like you do in all science with a square with various blobs all over it yeah and um and you can interpret that uh through quite a lot of calculations to um work out because so when you when you thread the beads onto the necklace, if if you imagine that in between each bead you have to do like a little knot, and then you know you see that on some necklaces, right? So that knot has um, it is has something called a peptide bond, um, which has very specific atoms involved, and one of the one of the things there is an amide, which is basically a nitrogen stuck to a hydrogen, and there's one kind of experiment we can do where you, you you basically get a unique fingerprint for each protein, which shows you like a little circle on a, on a big square for each for the position of each amide. So essentially in the whole backbone of that folded up necklace, every little knot, you get a particular point on this on this graph. And from that, you can work out where in space that thing is. And something that's really brilliant, actually amazing, the best thing I think about NMR, um, my, my subject, is that once you've got that um, spectrum, so you have a square and it's got a little circle that you know which which point in that necklace belongs to each blob, what you can do is you can add anything to it that you think might change um, that mm. protein. So, for example, like a drug that you know binds or that you want to see does it bind, um, another protein that you think binds, anything you add, as long as you haven't labeled it with those specific isotopes that I mentioned, they, it doesn't show up at all in the spectrum. But what you can do is monitor any changes that happen to your particular spectrum. So, you actually get a kind of really precise view of what changes when you add that drug so like maybe you know three or four of those beads will will move their position because their local environment was changed by what you add so it's like so it's like a necklace that has a personality and you've just put a bead on it that's gone oh no I don't like that that color bead that doesn't work well (laughs) and so then you're seeing how it moves yeah, and sometimes you get kind of distant effects. Like people say, um, if you, if you pull a mouse's tail, it might bite like something that happens to be in the region of its mouth. So you sometimes have kind of what they call indirect effects. Like you might add the drug, it binds in a certain place, but actually another part of its environment is changed because it changed shape or, you know, something like that. So it's sometimes a bit hard to interpret what you're seeing, but often it's not that hard and it's actually really encouraging if you see, you know, these 
random blobs moving because actually you can follow them if you add a little bit of what you're adding you can follow it moving across Mm -hmm. the spectrum and you can you know measure the position of each point and you can actually work out you know calculate some really detailed information about how those two things are interacting from that so there is a huge amount of stuff in such a tiny tiny space it's the department store yeah yeah. And so of all of these shapes that you're looking for, how many how many shapes have been found? It, yeah, it's an interesting question. It depends what what you it depends what you count. So like in a in a human, it's still it's still in debate actually how many different kinds of proteins we have. Mm-hmm. Um and also I have to say when I was doing my PhD, which is actually a really long time ago now, like it was in the late 90s, um that um, in in those days, it was considered that proteins had, you know, very specific shapes. And if they were like wiggling around, that was a problem, like they weren't mm. folding properly. Whereas now there's like a huge, huge field about intrinsically disordered proteins. And it's actually much, much more open minded that there are, you know, there are folded proteins that have a very defined machine um, shape, but it's really consider that everything has the potential to move and change shape and and oh, um, we've change become shape. more accepting of wibbly proteins <laughs> i like that very oh. much yeah very very much so so you no know, things really have yeah moved on in terms of the mm. open-mindedness of the protein folding field so going back to uh, our question because i just want to sort of tie it back to how do we, we had we had a few didn't we? In terms of these questions, yeah. we couldn't decide about how do we view the invisible. So what are all the different ways? Um, well, so there's one called X-ray crystallography, um, which is it sounds where... like something of a crystal ball. I was going to say, yeah. it's like people <laughs> putting crystals on people's heads and then just... Yeah. <laughs> what you can do is you've got... So you've got your protein made exactly the same way that I described in the bugs. You don't have to add any extra isotopes here. Um, then we have this fantastic robot called a mosquito because it's all designed on, you know, the little sharp yeah. thing in the mosquito's bum that like has is like has a little bit of liquid in a tiny tiny volume so this machine can can set up um all different conditions in which your protein might form crystals it's actually quite hard to find conditions in which a protein will form mm-hmm. a crystal but what you want to do is have gazillions of copies of the same thing like all aligned in the same orientation so you've got a crystal like like salt you know but just loads and loads and loads of copies of the same protein all in the same Mm. direct Mm -hmm. facing the same direction and if you do manage to achieve that you can then shoot x-rays at it and then you take a a sort of film of how all the x-rays are bounced off the different like things within the lattice of that crystal and from that view like that diffraction pattern we call it you can then deduce back the arrangement of the atoms inside mm-hmm. the protein. So that's crystallography. Mm-hmm. Um, in crystallography, the only British female scientist to ever, ever, ever win a Nobel Prize uh, was Dorothy Hodgkin, and she was an X-ray crystallographer. She won oh. in 1964, and there's not been anyone since, wow. which is a total disgrace. But anyway, that's so she was a crystallographer. Uh, she was a really fantastic person, and there's an amazing portrait of her in the... National Portrait Gallery. Mm. So yeah, there's crystallography, there's electron microscopy, which always used to be the kind of poor relation, but has recently, because it, it was 
sort of insultingly known as blobology because <laughs> the, um, no because because the uh, the definition you could get on a protein shape was not very accurate mm. like it was it was quite blobby it wasn't yeah. you know very defined the resolution was not high but um, in recent years, probably the last five years, um, there's been something they call the resolution revolution. Um, and there's been one massive improvement in the technology. And now electron microscopy is like possible on an atomic scale. Oh. And it's amazing. I can't even tell you. And everyone wants a piece of it, including us. Mm. Um, so we're, we're trying well, to solve that's brilliant. It. So they'll be able to sort of get rid of the blobby name and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's amazing. There's also something called native mass spectrometry, which my sister did her PhD in. Um, and the pioneer of that is uh, someone called Carol Robinson, who's very, very cool. Um, and yeah, that's it's it's a little bit different. It's not really giving you very um, detailed, like molecular level pictures of those shapes, but it gives you an amazing insight into like assemblies, like how different bits of machinery connect together to form mm. even like more exciting, cool bits of machinery. Mm. Oh, there's all sorts of other technologies that like we it's all biophysics, so it's using the machinery of physics to attack biological problems and that's what we consider ourselves to be and as you're saying there's a lot of ways of viewing those things but actually what seems to be the most success is by combining everything and working together yeah yeah very very much so cooperation and so you're constantly finding things that then find more things that you can find. So it, it's a changing, <laughs> yes. constant process to be able to look for all of those different shapes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, we won't run out any time soon. <laughs> You've got your work you know, cut they, out, they, it's they, fine. <laughs> We've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you um, and have and I've very much enjoyed the gin as well, I've got to say. <laughs> Way too smooth. Um, and whilst I can still taste palm violets, it's a really <laughs> nice way. And I don't like palm violets at all, no. but it just has that kind of memory. Um, but I'm really glad that you've introduced it to us. Um, and I hope that the limited release is not that just keep going because yeah. <laughs> it will be a yeah. regular thank you so much oh, it's been a it pleasure so nice. it was really fun i knew it would be sarah yeah what have you learned so i have learned so much that my brain is about to explode yeah. i have learned that these tiny cells in our bodies are like a department store. Are like a department store. Massively busy. Jumpers everywhere. And so much going on. But then with disease diseases, when they go wrong, so many different things go wrong mm-hmm, mm-hmm, in that mm-hmm. department store mm-hmm. that all of them look different. Yeah. And you can only see that department store with either magnets. Because they're so tiny, 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 tiny. tiny. And that there are all sorts of different ways of seeing Mm -hmm, those uh, tiny, tiny things. And that I also learned that we can't learn how to see those in a podcast (laughs) 
because, because we need that videos. is why these people have spent years <laughs> and years and years training. Us mere mortals, they're going, I kind of get it. <laughs> but I love that I have images of department store. I have images of necklaces and the way they've been mm-hmm. folded with magnets and mm-hmm. different beads that have been put on. And I can kind of understand the complexity, mm-hmm. the difficulty, mm-hmm. the different shapes and the technology mm-hmm. that is needed to see those tiny, tiny things. <laughs> and that it's important that you have people out there doing all of that yes because they're then seeing the shapes of all the proteins and things that they can start to identify the places where they've changed and the things that have changed to help with diseases mm-hmm. and all sorts of other stuff so much stuff I, i'm i'm a little bit mind boggled i my brain is pinging around mine hurts and how much it takes to come up with analogies to help us mere mortals try and understand something that is so complex. Fucking complex. So complex. Oh, need another gin. If you enjoyed this episode, listen to more. Listen We've got tons. Got loads. And if you like them, really, really like them, you could always leave us a review because apparently they're quite helpful. You can also subscribe. You can. And then you don't even need to go and find us. We just appear. Every single week. Yeah. We are on Twitter at... Topic Gin. And on Instagram... Topic Gin. (laughs) Join us next week for another gin and another topic.